Welcome to The Human Beat. I'm Roger Rocca. Astoria is one of the few cities anywhere that entirely owns and controls its own watershed, its source of clean water. The watershed is managed to make the forest as healthy as possible and protect the purity of the water that flows from our taps. No herbicides or pesticides are used. There's no spraying. All clearing is done by hand. Some thinning and planting is done to increase forest diversity and health, and that results in a small annual harvest for the city. At the same time, the city has been able to benefit from carbon sequestration credits based on the health and growth of its watershed forest. City Councilor Joan Herman and I got a first-hand look about 10 days ago with Public Works Director Jeff Harrington. As we toured the Astoria watershed with city forester Ben Hayes, we learned that much of it was just bare ground or replanted single species when the city acquired it. Hayes talked about what is being done to increase diversity and resilience in the watershed and about carbon sequestration. Pretty much the arrangement works so that once something was harvested, the city got the bare ground. And okay. so for the vast majority, we think it was basically harvested in three pieces. Um, just based on kind of the forest types, but everything we got was bare ground right, after that. Okay. So it had just been harvested. There were some places they left trees, and it appears that roughly a third of it, they never replanted at all. So it just naturally came back as forest. About a third of it, they aerially reseeded, we think, probably with leftover seed from World War II. So it's Douglas fir. It's not from Oregon. It's probably from somewhere else. It was probably, it was a period where there was a lot of surplus seeds. So like the Tillamook burns also, parts of that were airily reseeded. Um, and then the last part was probably planted. And that's where you get some of the weirder stuff. So we have areas that are pure spruce, which you wouldn't really find here um, in odd circumstances like that. So those are roughly the thirds that we got it in, but almost everything here was clear cut before it came to the city. So we're trying to near term increase the complexity so you have higher base flows, lower peak flows, lower turbidity. And to do that, we kind of need to break things up. So if you have something that's an even age monoculture, that's not gonna provide those functions for a very, very long time, even if you just walked away. So if we walked away and threw away the keys, we'd have more problems before we had that kind of condition than we would have the upside of kind of protecting water. The second piece there is diversity. So you wouldn't go out and invest everything in a certain stock that you're like, or a cryptocurrency or something where you're like, this is just gonna make me so much, so I'm only gonna invest in one thing. You would have diversity in what you invested in. And in the exact same way for the city, it makes a lot of sense to have as much diversity up here as possible. So this example that's widely used is hemlock looper. So it's a beetle that infested uh, hemlock in Clatsop County. Another one would be hemlock woolly adelgid, which has had huge impacts in the Northeast on water sources and it actually attacks hemlock trees also. So with both of those, there's not a great solution to them. So you really don't want a forest that's all hemlock or here in particular, one that's all Douglas fir because we have Swiss needle cast. So fungus, it's a big problem for the trees. And so that's where we're thinking about the future, how in 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, do you have the most kind of functionally complex system providing that ecosystem service of really, really clean, clear, cold source water that has low turbidity and low peak flows, high base flows. And then on the other hand, how do you also mitigate the risk of a fire coming through here or a pest or a pathogen issue or climate change? So 
with those, we don't know what the future looks like, what it holds and what those risks are, but we can do things to mitigate those risks now. So that's where the active management comes in. We can show you a couple examples of what we've been doing um, in terms of how do you go from like the example we had last year, it's about 40 acres that was almost pure spruce plantation and it was stagnating to the point where it wasn't putting on any growth in a year. So it had grown really quickly. They completely filled up all the space that they had to grow and they kind of couldn't compete anymore. Like the, typically if you have that case, the winners win and the losers die and then you get what's called stratification. So big trees, little trees. There they'd all gotten to a certain point and they just stagnated at the exact same age. So we went through there and we actually both thinned it and we put patches through it. So in those patches, we planted Western red cedar. We also put them next to big hemlock trees where the hemlock seed source and hemlock seeds in very, very well on its own would get us hemlock. And then we did leave spruce throughout as well. So in that way, we still have a canopy cover in that forest. We also have these bigger openings where we're trying to create complexity. A big part of these older forests and not creating big openings is we actually are just keeping the overall temperature cooler. And if you have a cooler temperature, that whole cycle slows down. Everything slows down. And so that allows for a much slower carbon cycle and you build up soil carbon, which is not quantified and sold at a much more rapid rate. So beyond the impacts that the city of Astoria's watershed are having in terms of a carbon market and selling carbon credits, in addition, it's storing a huge amount of carbon in the first probably two feet of the soil. Um, it's super, super carbon rich here. So let's stop right here for a second. So in that photo you guys saw earlier, there was kind of a big opening in the middle where uh, one tree had been cut down. This is a spot where that happened naturally on its own. So this is a place we wouldn't probably come into and do any management that this has some species diversity. It's mostly hemlock, but there is spruce, but it's also getting to a state where the winners are really winning and getting bigger and the losers are falling down and becoming that coarse woody debris on the forest floor. And then you're also getting these patches. So like here, you're getting that big patch with young hemlock growing up in it. So if you look to the right, the big noticeable difference is there's not much on the ground, right? That it's bare ground. And this is an example of a stand where it's not really stratifying. It's, so if you have an acre of forest land, there's only so much sunlight that hits that forest. There's only so much soil nutrients. There's only so much air being provided to it. The temperature is basically the same across it. So all the things that would constrain its growth are fixed. Yet you could have 900 trees on that acre or you could have 300 trees on that acre. In this case, it's got a lot of trees. It's got like 300, 400 trees to the acre and they're really taking up 100% of that available growing space. And this is a system that's primarily light limited. So the limiting factor here is light to some degree temperature and moisture. Um, here, as a result, all the trees are always going to allocate energy first to growing height before they allocate energy towards growing diameter. So you get really tall, skinny trees. They're also not able to allocate much energy towards growing a big crown. So a lot of needles, it's important for a healthy tree. So as a result, they're all kind of stressed. It's like a lot like living in a city maybe where everyone is stacked on top of each other and competing for who can be the most successful. Um, and you don't get that understory coming up underneath. So here, these trees are probably not putting on a whole lot of growth every year. And in reality, they're pretty stressed and they're probably not very happy. So if we have a real drought stress year, 
we're much more likely to see issues in this forest on our right than on our forest here on the left. And we'll up here in a little bit show you one where we've actually gone in and created some more space for each tree through thinning. So the other challenge here is if something happens to these trees, there's no other plant matter there to catch the water. So you have much faster runoff, you have a faster cycle, and you have much greater erosion potential. So our interest is really how do you break this kind of thing up? And the city watershed has a lot of this type of forest. This is what we've basically been working in since the forester before me. He started working in this in the early 2000s. So this was come, we came through and thinned this uh, five years ago. Um, and we thinned on both sides. I think we took out about 50% of the trees uh, with the interest of removing a lot of the Douglas fir. There's Douglas fir in here that had Swiss needle cast, but it's had time now to really develop more of an understory. So you're seeing more ferns, you're seeing young hemlocks growing up uh, that we were able to protect during the harvest, but also these trees are probably putting on growth rings that are two to three times the diameter of the growth rings that were being put on before that harvest took place. They also are getting more canopy. So it's called a live crown ratio is the amount of the tree that's green basically as a percentage. So some of these trees are upwards of 50% live crown ratio. So they have a lot of basically photosynthetic capacity. They can photosynthesize a lot. Um, they also have more water for each tree. So as we think about how do you make trees more resistant to drought, this is a really important tool for us to be able to thin um, and to think about thinning in a variety of different ways at different ages, many multiple times in some cases. Uh, we also, in almost all of the thinning, use what's called variable density. So we realize that the same treatment is not the perfect treatment for every single inch of this forest. So some places like little draws are left much, much heavier, so we leave more of the trees. Whereas a ridge, for instance, where there maybe is less moisture, we would thin a little bit more. We do buffer all the streams. So for instance, here there's a seasonal stream, doesn't run year round, um, but it does have a buffer on each side of it. So uh, due to the FSC certification, we have quite wide buffers on all our streams. A few days later, I sat down with city forester Ben Hayes to learn more about the history of Astoria's watershed and how it's managed for clean water, optimal health, and permanence. Actually, the very inception was in the late 1800s, it was a private water district. So a private water company was not associated with the city of Astoria. And they were selling water throughout the area. And sometime, I think in the 1890s, the city actually decided to purchase that private water company, which included the water line into the city of Astoria. And a big driver behind that was the need of high quality and mostly quantity of water for the canneries. So the water system was actually almost overbuilt at that point. Uh, and then in 1911, they purchased another piece of forest land. So I think that was about 500 acres right in the bottom of the watershed. And then that secured the bottom of the watershed, but the remainder was still owned by private timber interests. And Crown Zellerback, who was the owner of that property, got an arrangement with the city. And whoever figured this out on the city's end was absolutely brilliant. Because between 1936 and 1954, the city traded cutting rights, probably on some city-owned forest land somewhere else, for the underlying ground up on the watershed. So as things were harvested, the underlying ground reverted to city ownership. So that by 1954, 
the entirety of that watershed. So if you took a point at the intake into the water system and drew a boundary of everything that drains into that, including some stuff that drains into an adjacent water district, all of that was owned fee simple by uh, the city of Astoria, which is pretty unique. And that's one of the things that keeps it protected, right? That it is, it is surrounded by these ridges so that everything drains into it, but you don't have things from other places draining into it, right? Yeah, so no drop of water goes into the city of Astoria watershed that doesn't drain off land owned by the city of Astoria. What do we mean when we say watershed? What, what, what does that mean? Yeah, so watershed is a, <laughs> a term that's associated with, if you took a point, so like here, let's say we're taking the Bear Creek Dam, which is the main large uh, dam at the bottom of the watershed, and you drew a point where every single, or you drew a circle where every single point within that circle drained into that uh, dam, that would be the watershed. And this one is unique that it's actually every single acre of land that drains into the Bear Creek Reservoir, as well as into Cedar Creek, which is just further uh, east from there and into Fatbuck Creek, which is even east of that. So, and that's uh, the input then for the Wikiup Water District. Sometimes people get concerned when they hear that we are harvesting in the watershed, but we're doing that for different purposes than say a lumber company in terms of wanting to harvest so they can sell, sell the wood and that's how they make their money. What, why are we doing it? How do we do it? Yeah, so it goes back to the history question that you were asking about and also <laughs> the future also, but the history is unique that a third of the watershed, probably about the first third that was harvested, was not replanted or reforested in any way, so just regenerated on its own. About a third of it was aerially reseeded, so primarily with Douglas fir and spruce. And then the last third was uh, hand planted. And what you ended up with was very, very low species diversity and basically uh, even age monocultures. So the trees are basically the same age and the same species with some diversity in there. Uh, and what we are managing for is the quality and quantity of the drinking water today, but also into the future. So how do we manage risk around drinking water? So we have this system currently where we've inherited a forest that is relatively low diversity and relatively low complexity in terms of ages. And we're looking at a future that is highly uncertain. So we don't know, there could be a fire, there could be a pest or pathogen, there could be any number of issues that our ecological disturbances in Northwest Oregon. And the more diversity and complexity we have, the better that watershed will be able to provide those ecosystem services. So water is an ecosystem service uh, provided to the city of Astoria. So we want to mitigate the risk of pest or pathogen outbreak. We want to mitigate risks of extreme drought. That's like we've thought about a lot. And then also we know that more complex forest that has kind of more old forest characteristics increases the base flow and decreases peak flows. And that's primarily coming from research that the EPA has conducted up in Washington and similar forest types, not the exact same forest type, um, but it's enough to get us thinking about how do we increase the complexity in this system. The other place we do a lot of our harvesting is around thinning. So if you had a given acre of forest land, only so much light hits that acre of forest land. There's only so much soil nutrient. There's only so much moisture available to those trees. And so if you have 500 trees on that acre, you have relatively little in each of those resources per tree. 
And that's fine when they're very small trees, but as they get larger, they need more space and they compete. And basically, the winners win and the losers die. And so rather than having the losers die, we can go in and thin both pre-commercially, but also commercially. And that just means pre-commercial is you're not making money, commercial means you're making money. In order to allocate more water, uh, sunlight, soil nutrient to each tree that's left there. And that both allows them to grow a little faster, but also makes them more resistant to things like extreme drought. So one that we've seen as an example is if you have trees that are competing really, really closely together, they almost al always allocate energy as a tree towards growing height rather than growing diameter or crown, so the green part of the tree. And so if you have a very, very dense stand, they only have a very small crown. Whereas if we thin, we actually see that crown expand a little bit. And that basically means that tree has more ability to photo, more photosynthetic capacity than a tree that maybe is in a place where it hasn't been thinned. So the earlier and more often we can thin, the more we're able to retain the existing stands and increase their resilience in the face of drought. And uh, these, I mean, everyone's seen the last really dry couple summers we've had. And that's a serious concern of ours. I think most people too kind of get, most of us get the idea that uh, diversity is a good thing and that a monoculture of trees is not. And you know, the evidence is all over in California Sierra, there are huge swaths of Douglas fir that are dying because of Swiss needle cast. Mm -hmm. And so part of what you're doing is, is keeping that spread of disease in, in between your, the, the forest. Yeah. Absolutely. So pest and pathogen outbreaks are a huge concern. And the way I think about it is if you went out there and instead of your forest being a whole bunch of different kinds of trees, it was an investment portfolio with a whole bunch of different kinds of stocks. There's no way you would go out and just invest everything in a single stock. You would invest in a variety of different stocks. Um, in the same way, you wouldn't go out and invest in all one tree because in the investment world, if a financial issue comes along for that company and now they're worth nothing, you don't have any investments anymore. In the same regard for a watershed, if you go along and you have everything in one kind of tree and the hemlock looper shows up or hemlock woolly adelgid or uh, Swiss needle cast gets dramatically worse, which attacks Douglas fir, then you have a really, really big problem. Whereas we can mitigate that by at this point, kind of preemptively thinking about creating that diversity going forward. What struck me when we toured up there that what you're doing is you're taking this forest that is the, a product of replanting after harvest and so on and a lot of monocultures and you're sort of taking that back more to what the forest was like before we got here. Potentially, yeah. I mean, one hard part is we don't really know what that pre-white folks showing up uh, condition was and the forest, as you just pointed out, that we're inheriting really does not reflect the natural forest here. But yeah, I think over time, increasing the diversity and also thinking about nat natural plant succession. So what will inhabit a space in the forest early on after there's a disturbance versus what would a more old growth type characteristic be? There's a whole spectrum there. So for instance, there's some places we let alder come in where it will very, very quickly occupy a site, but then hemlock and cedar might come in underneath it as the alder gets to 50, 60 years old and starts to naturally die and fall apart. So you have more short-lived species, you also have species like cedar, hemlock, even fir on the uh, higher parts of the watershed, Pacific silver fir in uh, particular, that are very, very long-lived 
species. Now, how does the watershed work? How does having this forest up there give us clean water? <laughs> Wonderfully. Uh, so, the system itself starts with a raindrop or fog coming in, and here it's typically coming in off the Pacific Ocean. And that watershed is unique that it's situated on Wikiup Ridge, which is an almost 3,000 foot tall basaltic ridge that runs uh, northeast to southwest. And so moisture coming in both in clouds and already as rain hits that and uh, falls as typically rain, rains a lot up there. <laughs> there are many days when it won't be raining in Astoria. You drive up to the Bear Creek watershed and it is raining. Um, and typically the first thing it hits is a tree. And so uh, given that the more it can hit trees on its way to the forest floor, the more you have leaf intercepts, you're breaking up the rain droplets. Um, and once it gets to the forest floor, most of that forest, and this is actually something we saw as a result of thinning, has a very healthy understory. And so that helps water as it lands in that forest begin to percolate downhill. You both have surface flow and you have a lot of flow in that watershed going underground. There it collects into three streams. And each of those streams either leads down into a reservoir or into a small diversion structure. So actually, Cedar Creek can be diverted either very small part or quite a bit of it into the water system, even though it would historically have drained a different direction uh, through the watershed. So that's the so, very base, both forest component and water system. Component. Well, then the opposite of that would be bare ground, where the water would basically run off yeah. without being absorbed very much of it. So a big piece of our goal is how do you make that watershed function like a better sponge? Um, that as the rain falls, you want it to travel quite slowly through the system. Another thing to think about is trees are evapotranspiring constantly. So basically trees suck up water and it goes into the atmosphere. As they do that, older trees can make it through drought stress and evapotranspiring slightly less. You have those trees, while they're bigger, bigger trees, um, still evaporating a lot of water out of the system, you also still have a higher base flow because they're not having to suck quite as much water as a really, really competitive, young, kind of even age stand. Uh, the other piece there is, I think what you're talking about is that leaf intercept. So how do you create as many layers within the forest? So not only do you have the water droplet hitting on its way down and then very, very slowly moving through that wonderful sponge, how do you also make it so that if your overstory had an issue, you still have some trees there. So if you had a 2007 kind of storm, maybe there's still some understory that's going to be present to help with water filtration. And you're protecting that water pretty much every step of the way too. We're not using any kind of herbicides or anything like that. Yeah. You have to clear things, you're doing it by hand. Yeah, so it ends up being a lot of work sometimes, but we, there's no herbicide on the uh, Bear Creek watershed. There's also no burning, so typically you would burn your slash files. We don't do that up there. Uh, and then stream buffers are an important component of our management, so we do have considerably wider stream buffers than the Forest Practices Act would require. Um, typically, we have a minimum buffer of 100 feet on anything, whether it's uh, seasonal or annual. So the water is pretty clean to start with, and then beyond that, we're filtering it, and we're also treating it with both uh, chlorine and fluoride, I guess, before it actually gets to 
to the tap. Yeah, so I, I'm not, I'll keep my forester hat on that I'm not an expert in the city's water system, but right. my job is basically to make their job as easy as possible. So the cleaner the water coming into the system, the less treatment it needs and the less expense they need to allocate towards the filter system. So there are four sand filters up there. And a big component of how expensive it is to operate those is the quality of the water going in. And that goes back to that, how quickly does water run off? If water's running quite slowly, it's dropping sediment out of the water column, basically. And as a result, you have very low turbidity. So turbidity is basically how easy it is to see through water, pretty clear water going into that system. That helps them and decreases their cost. Well, I'm going to ask you a question, the answer to which I think is going to be pretty obvious to most people, but why is the, why is the watershed not open to the public? So there are a number of factors there. Um, the biggest one is just concern over human use of that property. The kind of the less human impact we have on the watershed, the better. Uh, one that we've seen in the past is hunting is a significant issue. Um, I think Nate mentioned the story of somebody's up there and they shoot an elk. The first thing they do is they're going to go wash things in a creek, and that's our source water. That's what both comes out of your faucet in town, makes any beer you drink in town. Um, that's pretty important to the city, and so anything we can do to protect that uh, is important. And one important aspect is there is quite a bit of recreational land that's open, and it's wonderful that it's open from both the state and timber companies in Placid County in Northwest Oregon. And so our sense is if we can do anything to mitigate risks on that Bear Creek watershed, that's a good thing to do. So the number one goal is clean water, and in order to achieve that, it's better if we don't all go play there. Exactly, yeah. Clean, and clean water now and into the future. And there are examples around of watersheds that are open to public use, either partially or fully. Then there are other ones like both Bear Creek and uh, Portland's Bull Run watershed that are completely closed to public access. There's another benefit too, besides the clean water and, and the city gets a harvest once in a while and actually gets get some money from the harvest, which is basically thinning, yep. in, in our case, not clear cutting, but carbon credits. Yeah. Um, so starting in 2012, the city did a forest inventory and that inventory showed what's called additionality. So if you think of the average acre of forest land in Northwest Oregon, if it had 100 metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent per acre, which is the normal unit used in carbon accounting, the city's watershed had considerably more than that. And so at that point, they initiated a carbon project that was done as part of the American Carbon Registry. And that was completed in 2015 and resulted in over $2 million in payments to the city of Astoria. Um, that was from the Climate Trust, which is a nonprofit based in Portland. And typically, either uh, utilities or industrial businesses are actually state and local government will buy carbon credits to offset their emissions over time. And that's what the Climate Trust does. So they purchased that in 2015. We've continued the carbon project is a 40-year commitment. So it's a long time in the life of the forest um, and in the life of the city, but it really makes sense based on the type of management the city wants to do. So it, basically, we sold our right to harvest timber uh, below that baseline that we set with the carbon registry. Well, it seems that the very fact that we are able to sell carbon credits sort of speaks to the proper environmental management of our forest. 
Yeah, so the protocol we're under is actually called the proof forest management. The two places we were able to realize that improved forest management were under what's called extended rotations, so basically not harvesting uh, as often. And we can still harvest a considerable volume of timber under this, so that allows us to do the type of forestry that's creating diversity and complexity up on the watershed. Uh, and as you mentioned, some revenue for the city. And then it also is reserve areas. So for instance, the fact that all of our stream buffers are excluded from cutting, that means we have quite a few reserve areas that we can count towards the carbon project. We've been talking with city forester Ben Hayes about Astoria's wholly owned watershed, our source of clean water. This is The Human Beat. I'm Roger Rucka. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.